this is Delaney Luna, one of the senior online editors at GPPR. And this is Kevin Barslow, senior interview editor at GPPR, and we're sitting here with... I'm Michael Steele, a, a fellow here at the Georgetown Institute of Politics at the McCourt School. Great. Um, we are going to kick off the discussion with GPPR's first question. Um, so we've noticed that policy is playing a smaller role in this election than in past elections. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, any ideas why this might be happening? Yeah, it's an incredibly frustrating development. Um, my job for most of last year was to sit at the intersection of the policy and communications teams on former Governor Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. And we were really hoping for and expecting in a lot of ways a robust discussion of public policy and how it can help the American people. And I think that's important because there are very substantial and very important differences between the two political parties on policy right now. In fact, I've never seen uh, either political party, particularly the Republicans, more unified when it comes to uh, their position on matters of public policy. Mm -hmm. Now, that hasn't happened in large measure because of Donald Trump, who has run a basically policy-free campaign. If you look at his signature policy proposals, uh, you know, building a, uh, a large, fabulous wall on the border with Mexico uh, or uh, a tax reform plan that involves a $10 trillion deficit even when scored dynamically um, or repealing Obamacare and replacing it with something fantastic or terrific uh, or banning every member of the Muslim faith, or perhaps members from particular countries from coming to the United States. At a very basic level, his policies are not serious, and they're not spelled out in the level of detail that you would expect from a presidential campaign. Sure. And I think Secretary Clinton is frankly taking advantage of that, uh, not to talk about her own policies, uh, leaving aside the question of the extent to which she actually agrees with some of her public positions on issues like uh, TPP or free college or, um, you know, well, she's, she's laid out a very vague proposal on uh, uh, international tax reform to pay for increased infrastructure spending and is pretty much taunting people uh, or surrogates are about the fact that they simply aren't going to release more details before the election, sure. which would be a scandal if it weren't for the Donald Trump factor. I think a lot would be a scandal right now if it wasn't for the Donald Trump factor. But we've been noticing this a lot at GPPR, just doing research for articles, trying to find out what Donald Trump has planned for any issue and, like, any given issue has mm -hmm. been really difficult. I think we've mostly had to go with what the Republican platform in general is, but yeah. I don't think voters are generally doing that. No, and we, we've got a fairly, we've got three different buckets at this point. You have the official House Republican Party, or excuse me, the official Republican Party platform, um, which is detailed but often um, a little esoteric, mm -hmm. uh, and then the House Republicans' Better Way agenda, and then the Trump campaign, which, you know, have has, as I said, just no detail whatsoever. I mean, you're, you're kind of, there, there are these awkward events where reporters are trying to guess at what his proposals are because what he says resembles a public policy proposal, but he doesn't actually endorse that or put anything on the website or put anything explaining that that's actually his position. Do you, do you think this policy list strategy that Trump is pursuing, um, 
is this just something that can work for Trump, or might we see this, you know, in the next election moving forward? You know, it's it's surprising because, in general, things were moving in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, policy proposals had become more and more detailed, uh, in part because more and more groups had the ability to do fairly sophisticated policy analysis. So, for example, in the past, if you were, say, a Republican who wanted to run on a vague program of cutting taxes without going into much specifics, you could get away with that. Um, but now, you know, the Center for American Progress will run an analysis of your not very clear tax plan, do it in the most deleterious way possible, politically damaging way possible, and then your opponent will run against what they imagine as your tax plan or the worst version of your tax plan. So in general, surprisingly, we've been going in the other direction. I think Donald Trump is a unique phenomenon, and my guess is that with the increased um, transparency, with the increased ability to explain public policy in detail on the internet and elsewhere, uh, you're just going to will revert back to having more and more detailed debates. I think, I hopefully, hope so. yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting that this is happening at the same time as the social sciences and data visualizations are becoming so well known and recognized and accessible and platforms like Fox and 538. Yeah. And just, it's weird that... It's, it's an increasingly data-driven debate, and he's just taken it in completely the opposite direction, mm-hmm. at least for the moment. Sure. Um, okay, we can move on to our next topic. Um, what policies would you propose to regulate money in politics? Because California has a proposition on the ballot right now urging legislators to overturn Citizens United. Do you think that that's the right approach? Do we need to overturn it? Do we need to just find ways to work within existing legislation? No, I, I, I believe that um, the best way to deal with money in politics is to have no limits on donations to candidates, uh, but with instantaneous disclosure of those donations. So if you want to give a candidate $100 million, you can do that, but everyone will know that you gave that candidate $100 million and that they accepted it from you. And I think that Citizens United is a perverse result of a ham-fisted attempt to regulate the system that has, rather than driving money out of politics, put it in more and more unaccountable and obscure places. So it's more an issue of political speech being out there for the public to see. So you think money is a form of speech, but sure, it's just not as transparent as it should be? There's, there's no doubt that people have a First Amendment right mm-hmm. to support candidates of their, of their choosing, and those who have greater resources can do that in that way. Sure. Um, you know, we, we've created a system of campaign finance laws that is bizarre and perverse. For example, you know, I've worked earlier, as I said earlier, I've worked for Governor Bush's presidential campaign. It was routinely um, said that Governor Bush's campaign had $100 million. It did not. Governor Bush's super PAC, which was run out of California, had uh, $100 million to spend. The campaign could not tell them how to spend that money and could not coordinate with them on how that money was spent. That's absurd. That means that Governor Jeb Bush could not tell the people who had this money how to use it on his behalf. Mm-hmm. And again, that's an example of the sort of um, perverse results you get from uh, ham-fisted regulation of campaign finance. Um, and 
you know, the, the most campaign finance reform efforts, in my opinion, are geared towards moving towards a system of public financing for elections. And in my mind, there is nothing scarier than the government getting to decide who gets money to oppose the government. Fair. Fair. What about um, limits on how long campaigns can go on for? Certainly, having lived through the past two years or so of this campaign, um, some sort of snap election system seems awfully appealing. At the same time, I have I have trouble coming up with a, a constitutionally acceptable way to shorten the presidential campaign. Um, you know, the Republican Party shortened the nominating process this year, uh, as did the Democratic Party, I think, in response. Um, that probably had mixed results. I, I, you, you never know if, given a little more time, uh, more delegates would have grown concerned about uh, Donald Trump's drawbacks as a candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I certainly wish it could be quicker, but I'm having trouble coming up with any way to, to accomplish that goal in a constitutional way. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would even think if we did make it shorter, the media would pick it up early on anyway you know yeah. it would be talked about for yeah i mean this is long, this is think. you know the the, the quote-unquote invisible primary mm-hmm. before candidates officially declare is covered almost as intensely as yeah. uh the early stages of the the official election campaign so i don't i don't know that that's uh as a reason that biggest reason that i can't imagine a constitutional system that would do it would be that you would have to restrict first amendment rights in some way and i don't think that's acceptable mm-hmm. yeah um, so going off our point earlier about um, increasing transparency in government, um, do you think the level of transparency we have in Congress right now is is it working? Is it the right amount of transparency through the wrong platforms? Like, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an extent to which people have to be able to have conversations in private with the expectation that those conversations will remain private. There's no way you can have the conversations and the fits and starts and half-baked ideas and trial balloons and, you know, the messy business of finding common ground um, often benefits from a degree of discretion and, and privacy. And while the institutions of government should be as open and accountable as possible... It really restricts um, the number of people who can be involved in the conversations that lead to results if there is uh, no expectation of privacy or discretion. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I would imagine it would make the entire process just that much longer. I mean, not to bring up California again, but that's where I'm from. So that's <laughs> the, those are the propositions I'm familiar with. But there's one right now saying um, voting on whether or not to require legislators to disclose everything on the internet. 24 hours before approval or something. And on the surface, that seems like, oh, wow, transparency is being improved. But the biggest argument against it is that everything will just take that much longer if they have to go through that extra step. Yeah, I mean, the, when Republicans took over the House and uh, after the 2010 election, we put into place a three-day rule so that legislation would be available online. Um, people would have a chance to read it before it was voted on. I think that's very sensible. Mm-hmm. It occasionally slows things down, but um, is well worth it. Um, on the o- other hand... Uh, President Obama's promise that all meetings at the White House would be publicly disclosed simply led to staff 
holding meetings with people they considered potentially embarrassing at coffee shops across the street rather than putting them on the White House visitor logs. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think social media is an appropriate platform for this kind of transparency? Because it seems like a lot of um, representatives use Twitter. Oh, as sure. A way to and that's a great way to that's a great way to communicate mm-hmm. with constituents. It's a great way to keep people updated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the reforms to put committee hearings on online, you know, live webcast, put the Rules Committee in the House uh, live webcast, uh, announcing the results of uh, committee votes on amendments have all been tremendous steps forward. Sure. Um, I think I'm just concerned about it because we all know a certain Republican candidate who misuses social media platforms like Twitter. <laughs> it doesn't always end up being the right Sadly, his right, abuses extend it. beyond the online realm. <laughs> wow. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about lobbyists. Um, they're often also cited as a cause of gridlock in Washington. Do you see the need for policy changes in this area? I think it's another area where increased disclosure and transparency is helpful. Uh, at the same time, I think that stigmatizing lobbyists, for example, banning them from working in the Obama administration, was a very foolish decision because most of the people, the executive branch of the United States government is an incredibly large and complicated organization. People who um, have experience working in various parts of that organization have to work after the president, after the president they work for leaves office. So, for example, if you were in... uh, political appointee in the uh, Bureau of Mines in under President Clinton. Uh, and, well, President Clinton leaves office, you lost your job. There's not another Democratic president for, you know, turned out to be eight years, you wouldn't know that at the time. You will probably go to work, perhaps for a mining company, but also perhaps for an environmental organization. In either case, you're expected to advocate for positions on policy areas you're familiar with, and will lobby or will register as lobbyist or could register as lobbyist. I don't think that should forbid you and your detailed knowledge of this issue from working in the Obama administration. So obviously lobbyists in general have kind of a PR issue right now. What do you think can be done to kind of um, sway people's opinion? Well, I think that the most important thing you have to understand about the job of lobbying is that um, the right to petition the government is embedded in the First Amendment, and that's essentially what lobbyists do. Some of them on behalf of corporations, some on behalf of associations, some on behalf of religious groups or environmental groups or social justice organizations, and so it shouldn't be in an it shouldn't be a an insult or a detriment to a person to advocate for things that they believe in uh, before their government. So switching gears, can you talk a little bit about how the Trump phenomenon has changed how Republicans and Democrats in this election are campaigning? Are they using Trump as an advantage against their opponents, as a disadvantage? How do they navigate these waters? You know, I'm really... um, It's obviously been a balancing act for a lot of Republican leaders in the sense that... um, you know, you have portions of the Republican Party that are unalterably opposed to Donald Trump's candidacy. You have a portion that is very supportive of Donald Trump's candidacy. And then you have this large middle area, which is people who are 
often deeply uncomfortable with Donald Trump's actions, his positions, his his rhetoric, um, his record. Um, but at the same time, also very concerned about the prospect of Secretary Clinton becoming president. Um, you know, she has uh, a record of very questionable judgment, including on areas of national security. She is ideologically liberal in a way that uh, conservatives believe will be de- detrimental to our economy, to our national security, um, to education, to, to all manner of issues. And she is surrounded by people who have at least the appearance of self-dealing uh, and corruption. And so there are people are terribly conservatives are terribly conflicted about this election. At the same time, I think, and we'll see tomorrow and, and, and shortly thereafter, Democrats are spending a lot of time, Democratic political organizations are spending a lot of time and money trying to tie Republicans to Donald Trump in places where he's unpopular. I don't think that's effective because if you look at candidates like Barbara Comstock, Carlos Curbelo, Bob Dold, Mike Kaufman, these are people who are nothing like Donald Trump. Well, Richard Burr is a is a gentleman and a statesman. Donald Trump is neither. Trying to tie Richard Burr to Donald Trump to hurt him, I don't think will be terribly effective. Sure. Um, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so could you talk a little bit about... Um, Maybe some examples from your time as policy and communications advisor to Jeb Bush, what the main challenges have been for communications for the press during this campaign? Uh, Donald Trump. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Look, the the Trump phenomenon has blotted out the sun. You you would see moments and and the outsides coverage he's received. Uh, You could see moments during debates when other candidates would engage and it looked like a normal political debate discussing people's record, their their policy positions, their plans for the future of this country. Um, And then it would be back to the childish taunting and name-calling and and foolishness um, and faux controversies that Trump stirs up. So I think that's been been a real challenge for his opponents and, and for the media. And I don't think they've always... Uh, performed well in that. I don't think anyone's always performed well in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, did you find yourself um, focusing almost all of your efforts on that issue, or did you? Well, ultimately, yeah. I mean, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of thought early on that uh, Donald Trump would. You know, he was running for publicity. He was hoping to get another season of The Apprentice from NBC. It was a publicity stunt of, and that he would fade. And you saw somewhat similar phenomenon in 2012 when Republican primary opponents to Governor Romney would kind of flare up in popularity, Herman Cain, Michelle Bachman, etc., and then kind of fall back to earth uh, after saying something ridiculous or uh, being revealed to have uh, checkered past. And Donald Trump said ridiculous things, and he was revealed to have a very sordid past, and he it didn't hurt him in the polls in the primary, um, which was extremely frustrating. So there was for a long time there was this thought process that there was going to be ultimately Trump versus a non-Trump candidate who would consolidate the party and defeat him. Mm-hmm. And for a while there was a lot of jostling about who would be that candidate, but ultimately the, the real problem was uh, was dealing with Trump himself. Sure. Well, so one phenomenon we've seen, you mentioned polls, is you know Donald Trump uses the polls almost like a weapon. Do you see that kind of strategy moving forward as well? Well, it worked. It worked 
very well in the primaries when he was uh, securing a commanding plurality of support. It's, he seems to have uh, backed off of using that tactic since the polls haven't been quite so rosy recently in the, in the, in the general election. And that's a, that's a big distinction. I mean, people, people talk about the uh, running for president as a marathon, but it's, it's really two very distinct um, and different phases. You know, the, and what, what works to secure your nomination, the nomination of your party, will not necessarily work to win the general election. And that's a, it was a depressingly, maddeningly overused word, but that's the pivot that Donald Trump never really made. Um, Well, one thing this just brought to mind, a lot of the support for Donald Trump is coming from people who, who feel like they've been left out of globalization, they've been left out of the economic recovery after the crash, do you think that the other candidates fail to validate these struggles, or do you think Donald Trump just gave them the loudest voice? I think there's a lot of credence to that analysis. I think that as the Democratic Party has grown more diverse, they have essentially lost the support of working-class white voters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's striking that some of the some of the policy proposals from Donald Trump could have come from Dick Gephardt running in the Democratic primary in 1988. The, the protectionism, the, the um, opposition to immigration used to be a big part of the Democratic Party and Democratic coalition. And as these voters have, you know, Reagan Democrats became Republicans, um, I think a lot of Republicans, mainstream Republicans, didn't adapt. I think there's also a very real cultural and economic divide in the country um, between relatively few affluent, mostly coastal communities where there really has been a recovery from from the Great Recession and the financial collapse, and other areas that are still grappling with the after effects of um, both the crash, but before that, kind of the hollowing out of the manufacturing base of the country. you know, I was reading uh, Hillbilly Elegy um, by J.D. Vance over the weekend, and um, both the, you know, just kind of the firsthand description of what that was like on a personal level, um, living in a community that was, that prospered when the steel plant prospered and crashed when the steel plant went away. I mean, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, which uh, made huge quantity of cigarettes in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, and 70s. It was a place where you could graduate from Durham High and get a job at American Tobacco or Liggett Myers, and you had a very nice middle-class life with a high school education. And by the time I was a kid in the 80s, those factories were closed. They were operating at a fraction of their capacity, maybe, and there wasn't anything for those high school-educated people to do. Um, and that's a, real, that's a real issue, and it's something that the party's going to have to grapple with in the aftermath of this. Yeah, would you say that's maybe the one good thing that's come from Donald Trump's run is that he's drawn attention to? Yeah, I mean the, the 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 frustrating side of Donald Trump's run is that while he claims to champion working people and their interests, most of the policy proposals he offers would have exactly the opposite result. Sure. Uh, and the way he's lived his life, you know, the fake charities, uh, the hiring uh, illegal immigrants for his own projects. 
violating the law or taking advantage of tax laws, uh, laying off people at his casinos. It just there's an extraordinary record of um, taking advantage of working people and offering things that won't help them. So I hope what comes after this is a renewed focus on these issues, but in a way that has a policy focus that will actually help. Sure. Um, Okay, well, I think that pretty much covers our questions for you. Do you have any last thoughts before we find out tomorrow? (laughs) No, I've had an, I've had an, we we just finished a discussion group uh, uh, here in the Baker family room at the Institute of Politics. Uh, My groups meet uh, 4 p.m. on Mondays. I hope everyone gets a chance to come by. We have pretty fascinating discussions and uh, have had a great experience. And if this is uh, on Election Day, if you're listening to this on Election Day, there'll be a program tonight in the Healy Family Center with uh, Scott Mulhauser and I providing running commentary as the polls close. Oh, awesome. So swing on by. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.